0: You're listening to The Casual Mancatter on Thoughts from the Metal Cavern. The Gabba has never been an easy place for opposing countries to come and win. England hasn't won there since 1986. With the draw in 2010, their only match that has saved them from a whitewash since then. But if ever they were a chance, surely it had to be this year. Neither team had been firing or had much cricket, but Australia had lost their captain and keeper, two of their strike bowlers were struggling, England's bowling looked in good shape, and Shane Warne was doing most of the heavy lifting for them in the media by bagging every decision made in the Australian camp. So just how did it go so wrong for England? It wasn't as if they didn't have their chances in the match, but once again in Australia, they appeared incapable of seizing the moment. On today's episode, we'll have a look at a few of those moments and wonder whether there exists any sliding doors moments for England or whether it didn't matter what card they'd played, Australia would always have had a better hand. All that on the one podcast that isn't afraid to speculate on how big an ego you have to have if you can't just shut your mouth once in a while. On the casual right here on thoughts from the middle cabin There's some pretty amazing things that happened before a ball was even bowled in Brisbane, and I must admit, you could look at it two ways, and, and I guess I'm on one side, and, and everybody else in the world is on the other, especially the English, and there's a good reason for that. Uh, so, firstly, we came to when the teams were announced. Now, a day before the team, before the match was to be played, was announced that Jimmy Anderson firstly, was not fit to play in the Test match. Uh, it was later then clarified that he was fit, but he wasn't going to be playing at the Gabba. And then we got to when the teams were announced before the toss. And there was no Stuart Broad in the team either. So their two most experienced bowlers, two of the greatest wicket-takers in Test cricket of all time, not just of England. Neither of them... Even though they've been brought out to Australia, we're playing in the first test. Now, I sort of spoke in my last episode uh, in previewing the test match about England being brave and, and only picking one of those two for Brisbane and then switching them for Adelaide. Uh, not in my wildest dreams that I ever believed that they wouldn't play either of them. <laughs> I just, it didn't seem as though that could be a possibility. Now, whether that was brave or not, or stupid, is open to question. Uh, By playing Wokes in front of Broad, as it appears that was the final decision that came about, it really looked as though they wanted to ensure that their batting was stronger as well, given that they also went in with six batsmen and a keeper, as we sort of spoke about last week, and then Wokes at eight. Uh, So giving that batting a fair bit of depth while still giving them five bowlers. Now, we then had the toss. So, we spoke about being brave at the toss, and to be honest, Root won the toss, and he went in with a decision to elect a bat, which most pundits felt was crazy. And uh, he ignored the way the pitch was, that there was an interrupted preparation... And went about hoping, no doubt hoping, that it would be a positive move, that he's gone in as the captain, and he said, this is our team, we are going to bat first, and we are going to score 400 and put Australia under pressure. Now, if they'd only been two down at lunch, or even three down at lunch, then the decision would have worked for them. And if they'd then been able to bat out the day and get 280 on the board, even if they were all out, then at least you could say that they had made a positive decision and then could fight on from that. Now, obviously that didn't happen and they were five down at lunch and they were all out by two and then the final session was washed out. So, realistically, both of those decisions that England made, they both failed. Hindsight suggests that playing broad would have had him in David Warner's eye line after the um, battle over in 2019 and then bowling first would have accentuated this and gotten straight into that contest and that this may have been a better option overall than what they did by not playing broad and then batting first. Now obviously the NASA effect uh, came in. We all know that NASA won the toss in 2002 and was quite happy to send Australia in on what turned out to be a belter and Australia then belted them. However, There's nothing that suggests that by doing this, by both playing Broad and by then bowling, that that would have worked for England either. If you're going to look at that situation, we can open up both of those scenarios in a sliding doors moment that Broad had played and that Australia had batted first. And we think about, would much have changed because of that? Now, when Australia batted Warner was given several lives, but apart from that, batted fairly solidly. Uh, Manus Labershone was in absolutely sublime touch and um, would have been disappointed to only have made 73. So given that there are only two sessions on that first day anyway, as rain would have washed out that third session either, if Australia had perhaps reached 4 for 160 at 2 before that rain came, who is to say that they would not have been able to build a substantial total of 350 anyway? Would Green have been bowled leaving first ball if that had happened? It seems unlikely. Uh, would Head have been able to have played the same sort of swashbuckling innings as he did? Maybe not, but you would think that he would still have gone in with that positive intent. Would England have done any better than either their 147 or 297 they scored in the second dig? So it seemed like that was as many as england were going to make anyway no matter where they batted or when they bat- or how they batted so perhaps the test may not have finished in three and a bit days but you still think that even if those two things had been reversed that australia would still have been in better fettle now the experts are going to ponder those two decisions for the rest of the series the not playing of anderson and broad or one of the other And also batting on winning the toss. In the long run, given the way the game played out, given the way the players played, can't really see that it would have affected the result of the test match. Oh, just reach out and catch it, Geoffrey. What a magnificent hit. So, what did affect the result of this test match? Well, The first ball of the test was a pretty good start. (laughs) And you have to look at the fact that there was all this pressure, whether Mitchell Stark felt it or not. The media pressure on Mitchell Stark leading up to this game, especially just from basically Shane Warne, all of that was released immediately with that first ball. Now, bowling burns around his pads with the ball swinging back, despite the fact that Shane Warne decided that the ball didn't swing, that it was a straight ball. That immediately gets Stark up and going. And for the rest of the game, no matter what you think of the way he bowled for the whole match or the figures that he ended up having, that just let that pressure valve off for him. And that was the best thing that could have happened for him and for Australia. And then you had Hazelwood's first spell when he nipped out Milan and Root and getting Root for a duck in that first innings. That was just a sensational spell of bowling. And then we had... You know, Pope and Butler going together fairly well, sort of through that end of that first session into the second session. But once they were dismissed, that was the end of England, and it was only a matter of time. And 147 at the end of the day's play, because they lost that last session, was massive for Australia and then massive for England. Because at that point in time no one believed that England was going to be able to win the match. If you look at the way that David Warner played, it certainly wasn't a perfect innings. It was one of those innings where he had enough luck to go his way to enable him to get to 94. And everyone sort of got to the point when he got out for 94 and they said, oh, isn't it a shame he didn't make 100? I'll bet he didn't walk off thinking that. I think he probably walked off thinking, man, how did I get to 94 here today? But I'll take it. But how on earth did I possibly get there? Because everything just didn't quite work, did it? The no ball incident with uh, Ben Stokes, and of course, that's been spoken about a little bit, which we'll come back to, uh, being bowled off that no ball. He was then dropped by an absolute sitter by Rory Burns at slip when he was still 46 or 47. The failed run out when he went out of his ground and slipped over and lost control of his bat, and all the short leg had to do was just hit the stumps and he'd have been run out, and he wasn't. Uh, so, honestly, Everyone would look at that and say and he played and missed a fair bit and it, you know nothing was really good about the innings as such and a lot of people have classed it as a lucky innings but the point is that England failed to take those chances. They had that shit. They bowled him and it was off a no ball. That's the bowler's fault. Um, the catch at Slip was an absolute sitter, absolute sitter and that was poor. The run out was just uh, you know something that should have been done. Maybe they're 50-50 but at that point in time... If you take that chance, then you turn the match. And England were f- just failed to do that. More than anything else, they lucked out when Labashain, who was hitting the ball superbly, then got himself out by cutting it straight to backward point off Jack Looch, who they just absolutely massacred. And what about, you know, getting Smith early? you know? And then what about Cameron Green being bold without playing a shot? So... Those kind of things England had going their way a little bit, and other things they didn't. But the point was that Australia was 5 for 195. So that was only a lead of what's at 48 runs. And with 5 wickets down, if England was able to get those last 5 wickets quickly and only concede a lead of about 100, then the opportunity was there for England to get back into the game. And... They couldn't do it. That's, that's the thing. Test cricket is a different beast. And I think you'll find that despite Head's terrific innings, look at the way that day panned out. Stokes was, has not played any cricket at all. He hasn't played any cricket. And Test cricket is a different beast for that. So he was out there on that second day. He would batted a little bit and then he had sort of a, a hamstring and he's sort of a knee and he's pulling at himself and he obviously wasn't fit. He'd obviously done something in the field fairly early on and yet he kept going which is terrific but he wasn't at 100%. Now Robinson hasn't had a lot of hard test cricket and it really showed out there. You could see by the end of that day he couldn't even bowl. He could not even get himself up for it was whatever his fourth spell of the day or whatever it was. He bowled the one over and was bowling like 112 and then they had to Go with someone else. So there's two of those bowlers gone through not being test match fit and not cricket fit. Of course, Jack Leach was absolutely, completely taken out of this game by Warner and Labuschagne. They were absolutely brilliant. From the first ball, they decided they were going to get onto him and hit him out of the attack. And at one stage, he'd bowled 10 overs for 80 or 11 overs for 90. And even though he got the wicket of Labuschagne. In essence, they took him out of being able to just hit a length and just being able to bowl 20 overs from one end and hold up an end. He got taken out of the game and then that left Root with a problem of trying to find out what he was going to do at that end to try and contain the Australian batsman. So that was just fantastic. And then when we got to the end of that that session on the second day, the last session, when we had the problem with Stokes, we had the problem with Robinson, and Travis had just absolutely obliterated the game and played the perfect innings for the perfect time. And that's what got Australia to a point where they couldn't lose the game. And then at the end of day four, after England had fought back so well on that third day, uh, having bowled Australia out to be two for 220, Root and Milan had to go on. They had to... Get in front, they had to get in front of Australia and then they had to put pressure on the Aussies by continuing on. And instead, they lost three, three for 13 in a four over period and that early uh, of the on the fourth day. So any chance of victory was then gone. And as it turned out, they got a lead of 19, Australian near 20, did it nine wickets in hand. But those are the moments again they worked so hard on that third day, those two, and they really had to do it again. But Australia just ended up being too good with them, uh, too good for them, <laughs> with the ball. That's that. of ball! for Australia! What an effort! What a stroke! It's Michael Bevan's evening at the Sydney Cricket Ground. So despite the loss, England will have some positives going forward. But will they be enough to try and already turn this series around after one test? Uh, Robinson and Wood were terrific with the ball and uh, more than showed why they got their places on this tour. Now, can they back that up in the coming tests? Uh, Certainly, Wood hasn't uh, done a lot of consecutive test match bowling. Uh, He's had problems before in breaking down and we've already seen Ollie Robinson at the end of that first day how sore and tired he was. So how are they going to be able to back up with a four-day break before the next test? Uh, There's no doubt in the world that they'll be joined by at least one, if not both, of uh, Anderson and Broad, and that will stiffen the bowling attack. Hamid, at the top of the order, did really well. He got a pair of 20s. He batted time. He showed that he uh, can get... The shine off the ball, which is the, the good old-fashioned opener's job, is to see off the new ball. He'll be hoping that he can go forward and, and turn those 20s into at least 40s and 50s. But he showed some uh, a, a nice technique and uh, an ability, as I said, to bat time. Joss Butler attempted to do what many people think he should be doing, which is batting in that Adam Gilchrist-type way of of freedom and through hitting through the ball as he does in white ball cricket so well. He got uh, a few runs in in, uh, the first innings, not so many in the second dig. But if he can transform his batting into the way he does in white ball cricket, and surely if you are England, you are encouraging him to do that, if he's going to bat at number seven, then he could still be a major influence on the series. And obviously the partnership between Root and Milan was fantastic for England on that third day. Milan has been um, maligned a fair bit, I would have thought, over the last few years since he last toured Australia. He's always appeared like he could be a test batsman, so perhaps now he's going to be given that chance. Uh, Australia will think they have the wood on him, but uh, he's shown before that he is more than capable of scoring runs in Australia. And Joe Root's second innings again showed the best and worst of him as a batsman against Australia. When he's on, he can play every shot in the book. But sometimes Australia just get to the point where they can tie him up, tie him down, and then find a way to get him out. Ollie Pope batted reasonably well, uh, and he's another who England are banking on, certainly for the future. So they have to find a way to... Score more runs, and the batsmen they've got are who they've got. I don't think that the batting's going to change. Uh, the bowling, as we said, we'd expect that uh, the old fellows will come back in and add a bit of starch. But again, is it going to be enough to beat Australia? Now, Australia have won by nine wickets, and they certainly weren't perfect in any struggle of the imagination. There's still a question mark over Marcus Harris as to whether he's going to be a long term Australian opener. Uh, and he will certainly be looking at Adelaide as being a very needed opportunity to score some runs. Steve Smith failed with 12, (laughs) Uh, but Labashain was good. Warner will be better for the run um, and certainly won't get that many chances ever again, but it was great to see Travis Head score runs. Uh, Cameron Green's bowling was fantastic, took his first three test wickets, and that's a positive for Australia, despite the fact he only faced one ball with a bat. I'm pretty sure that his batting will be fine. We just need him to get those few wickets now. And uh, we found ourselves a really good number six. And the bowlers, of course, Stark was was fine. I, don't, I wouldn't say he was excellent, but he certainly did took wickets when he needed to. He got Butler as well in that first innings, uh, along with Burns, when they were needed. Cummins, of course, was excellent. And Hazelwood as well was excellent. Now, he's injured for the second test and they will need to find a replacement for him, which would mean that uh, there's more uh, a burden, I guess, on Stark to make sure that he does make breakthroughs with that pink ball in Adelaide. But the bowling itself is good. Now, Nathan Lyon took his 400th wicket. Everyone everyone had been sort of pushing on that. Well, Shane Warne had anyway. Uh, So that's out of the way. Um... We have the pressure off Travis Head now. He's made those runs. So Australia, although they weren't perfect, have certainly got some positives out of the game as well and obviously will be looking to improve themselves going forward and not letting England even a sniff of getting back into this series. Man out at long on, but he needs to be 25 seats back. couple of other things we should probably discuss. Firstly, let's go with Travis Head's innings, which at the time turned the match to Australia's favour. Now, often in Australia we talk about our number fives and six being the guys who we want to change the course of the match. They've got to come in at three or four for nothing, or they come in at three or four for three 300. So their job is always a little bit different. Their job is either to hang around and stick, you know, build the innings after it's been uh, shattered at the top or they've got to come in and move the game along to try and get the result. Now, Travis Head played this perfectly on the end of day two, scoring a century in a session, even though it was an elongated session, but still a century in a session, uh, and at better than a run of ball, the third fastest Ashes 100 ever scored. And it was just a fantastic innings. He took on the tired England bowlers. He made the game his own, and that's exactly what we're looking for. Now, I'm a little bit biased with Travis. I just like him. I think he's a good kid, even though he's not a kid anymore. Um, I think he's earned his dues. I think he's earned his chance to be a test batsman. He's done all the right things when he was dropped initially and then to come back, score enough runs and get back into the team. I really hope that this is the innings that he uses as a platform to go on to better things. One of the other things we've got to talk about it's the way that the captaincy worked. So Pat Cummins was in his first test. He made no bones about the fact that he specifically asked for Steve Smith to be his vice-captain and that he would be using Steve Smith uh, differently from how players have used their vice-captains in the past and that, he would, that Steve would be enabled to change fields and do that kind of thing um, if he was on the boundary or when he was bowling or for whatever reason it was. Now, they obviously have to be good mates, they obviously have to get on well, they obviously have to have the same sort of philosophy as a captain. So, there was a couple of times there where things occurred that later on it was explained that it was actually Steve Smith who had come up to Pat and said, I think you should do this, and they did, and it worked. So, it appeared on the surface that their first test in charge has worked extremely well for Australia on the field. And that's the way it's going to have to be. Cummins is already going to be overloaded with the fast bowling duties, let alone all the duties that go with being a captain. So he's going to have to find a way to manage that. Now, if Steve Smith is going to be there on the field and helping out without being the actual captain, then that can be a great thing. Now, not all of us agreed that uh, Steve Smith should be given a position, once again, in a, a role as this after the Newlands incident. But now we've got to move forward because he has been appointed, and hope that this works. So far, it looks like it's working a treat. Nathan Lyon finally took his four hundredth Test wicket. Became, I think, it was the seventeenth person to take four hundred Test wickets. Uh, he's the third highest Australian to take the third Australian to take four hundred Test wickets. Now, no one would ever have believed that when he first came on the scene that Nathan Lyon would be spoken about in the same way as Shane Warne and Glenn McGrath as our top wicket takers. So his form over the last 18 months, as we spoke about in the last couple of programs, has been fairly average. He hasn't been uh, as effective in taking wickets as he has in the past. Now, his bowling here in this test was quite interesting. He bowled nine overs in the first innings where there was nothing in the wicket, and Australia went through England anyway. In the second innings, he bowled over 30 overs. He took four wickets. Uh, He looked like he'd been revitalised, I guess. Uh, His line was back outside off stump, spinning into off stump. Uh, He appeared to have the batsman in some sort of trouble. And now hopefully we get to the situation that when he gets to the more helpful wickets, such as Melbourne and Sydney, that he's really going to turn it on. He's been such a great uh, part of the Australian team for so long, that it's uh, – and given the difficulties he's had uh, with, uh, say, keeping other spinners out of the team, which I certainly believe is is uh, a part of the reason why our spin bowling ranks in Australia have been falling away because we're not getting other spinners to get an opportunity to play test cricket as other countries allow it. Uh, it's important now that Lyon does continue to do as well as he is because when he does eventually – uh, stop taking wickets and or retire, there's going to be a big hole in that Australian team. Smash the middle stump out of the ground. Mitch Johnson on fire. Alrighty, that's all for this review of the test match. Don't know if I've covered much that you didn't already know or already thought about Maybe I'll be able to do better next time if I actually think about it. New test is just a few days away. I'll be back in a couple of days with my preview of the second test match in Adelaide where we'll have a couple of new players joining the fray. Will they change the result? Well, for an Australian, let's hope not. Let's hope that we uh, can get it finished in two and a half days perhaps. Anyway, to all of you who have tuned in, thank you again for listening, and I hope that you'll be back again for another episode of the man... Uh, the man-man? The casual man-catter. Right here on Thoughts from the Metal Cabin. Got it! Yes, on oh, the thick outside edge. Tell your story walking, pal. Australia, right on top of you. I love them all. I want to book them. Get them up here. You have been listening to a Metal Cabin production.